0: I was sitting outside a coffee shop recently. Uh, it was specifically the Starbucks on Westheimer across from the Galleria, which is apparently, I didn't know this, the lowest rated coffee shop in all of Houston, according to Yelp. So all I can say is don't, don't go there. Um, and I found out why. It's just, a, it's a horrific experience, the Starbucks on Westheimer across from Galleria. If any of you are listening online, I'm sorry, just get better and I won't criticize you. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's better coffee shops to go to, but I was there. All I wanted to do, I just wanted to finish my sermon. And so what I did, I set up a little workstation on the patio outside. The weather was beautiful. And I had my Bible out and I had my notebook, my computer, and I put my headphones in. I wasn't listening to music. I just put my headphones in. Why? To signal to everyone else that I'm here to be alone. I don't want to talk to any of you people. That's why my headphones are in. Most people get that signal, but there's always that guy. Especially when you have a Bible on your table. There seems to always be that guy that comes and stands over your table and waits for you to remove your headphones. And that happened this particular day. A guy in his 20s, very eager to talk to me, came and literally stood over me. And I tried to ignore him for a minute and hope that he would just kind of go away. But I looked up at him and he was pointing at his ears, trying to tell me to take out my headphones. He wanted to talk to me. I just, I pointed back at my ears and said something like this to try to get him to go away. I don't know why I did this, but I just wanted him to to go away. And and he didn't. And he stood there, so I took out one headphone just to send him the signal to let him know that I'm only half interested in whatever he's about to say. (laughs) And he he proceeded to say, he said, "Uh, I feel like I've seen you before. Aren't you... And the worst part of myself, the most pretentious, most arrogant part of myself kicked in in that moment because I said something like, Well, I'm a pastor and my sermons are on Facebook and Vimeo. Maybe you've seen them passed around from time to time. I'm kind of a big deal, you know, that kind of a thing. What an idiot. And he goes, You're a pastor. And it, like, made his day. He was so surprised, and he felt the need to pull up a chair and sit down. So suddenly I have a coffee mate, because pastors apparently don't say no to anyone. And so you can just sit down at their table whenever you like. And inside, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't have time for this. And he sits down, and he gives me a little brochure about Jesus, and he proceeds to talk to me about Jesus for what felt like hours. It might have been like three and a half minutes, but it went on forever in my mind. And the more he talked, the more annoyed I got. You ever been there? Man, I I kept looking for a way, a gracious way of telling him. I didn't have time to sit here talking about Jesus with him. I've got a sermon to write, you know. (laughs) But I couldn't find a a nice way to say that. Uh, And so he just went on and on. And and he got a little judgy, you know. It's one of those kinds of Christians. And to make matters worse, the little brochure he was handing out, the title of it was The Story. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, everybody this guy talks to today is going to associate him with my new little, little, little fledgling church I'm trying to get to survive here. And everybody's going to think, that's us. And I'm just, all these thoughts are going through my mind. And finally, I told him, I said, man, I'm so sorry. I've just got so much work to do. Uh, and so I said, God bless you, because that's what you're supposed to say when you're a Christian and you want to end a conversation. And so I told him, God bless you, and invited him to proceed with his evangelism elsewhere. I didn't see him for like 30 minutes. He walked around the other side of the building, Jamba Juice over there, whatever that's there, and, and uh, 30 minutes later, he came back around, and he was looking for more people to talk to about Jesus. And he had already hit me up, so he went to the young lady at the table near mine, and he stood over her, and uh, she took her headphones off, and he said to her, I feel like I've seen you before somewhere. Aren't you... And this rage just boiled up inside of me, of like the whole thing was an act. The whole thing was a shtick, you know, manipulation. And so in the middle of that moment, the worst part of me just came to the surface. And I blurted out, interrupting their friendly conversation, I said, just don't encourage him, okay?" And immediately I regretted that decision. Because now not only did I just seem like the worst kind of jerk to that young woman who had no idea what I was talking about, and I was the crazy one in that moment. You see how that could happen? I just completely interrupted this nice young man trying to talk to her. Not only was that happening, but the guy looks at me like I'm Judas. Because what kind of pastor Bible blocks a coffee shop evangelist like that? I I thought you were on my team, you know, that kind of thing. Just the worst kind of regret came over me. And it was was in that, that moment, it was just this reminder how easy it is for us to give in to cynicism, man. When we are at our worst, when we're stressed, stretched thin, when we're pulled in too many different directions, we don't have any kind of spiritual, you know, resources in our reservoir to give, it's so easy to take the easy way out and become cynical and skeptical and just dark. Is what I was in that moment because I was so self-absorbed. I was so stressed out about meeting my deadline for my sermon to be finished that I didn't even have time to act like a human with this guy. You know, I, I could have dug a little deeper and been less of a coward when he's sitting right in front of me and told him man to man, brother to brother, you know, the effects that he might be having on people being as manipulative as he is and, 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 you know, maybe I could coach him a little bit, encourage him to do his ministry, but to do it a little bit differently. But no, I took the easy way out. I was cynical, I was skeptical, and I just, I, I just, I took the easy road. And it occurred to me in that moment that we live in a world that needs more encouragement and less discouragement. Encouragement's harder because encouragement is based on love and optimism and those things will get you hurt. Those kinds of things take a toll. Discouragement is just based on fear and and cynicism. That's always easy to come up with. Anybody could do that. It's the path of least resistance. The world has plenty of that, does it not? Many of us have plenty of that going on in our lives, and all of us are met with moments like the one that I was met with at that coffee shop all the time, if you really think about it. Every day you are faced with little moments, little windows of your life where you have a choice, little crossroads, where you can choose in that moment to be an encourager or a discourager. You can choose in that moment to be optimistic or cynical. You can choose to be hopeful or or just you know, just pessimistic and dark. And you know one path is easy and one path is hard, but the hard path is so worth it. We all know that encouragement is better than cynicism. We know it in theory, but when the rubber beats the road, we so often choose cynicism. I want to ask you why. First of all, I just want to ask you, do you agree? Like in your own study guide or in your own heart right now, like, is it true that you're a less cynical, less encouraging person now than you used to be? A more cynical person now than you once were? Because maybe life has worn you down a little bit. Everyone agrees, though, that encouragement is better than cynicism. Child development specialists are saying, and have been for two generations, that Positive reinforcement and affirmation is a better way of getting children to modify their behavior over a long period of time than physical pain or inflicting punishment physically are. Now, some of you are old school parents. You're like, you don't know my children, boy. And I get it, but I'm telling you, I'm talking about the long-term vision of your children's lives and how positively reinforcing their good decisions is more effective long-term on their behavior modification scale than Hitting them when they do something wrong is. I'm talking about keeping your kids off the Oprah show one day. I'm talking about keeping your kids developing long-term. Everyone agrees encouragement is better than cynicism and threats and fear. All the HR specialists are saying the same things now. HR people are like encouragement evangelists now because they're all saying that if you want to create a, a, a workplace, a culture that people want to work in or people want to go to work, Even if it means going to work for you for less money than someone else, create a culture in your workplace that's based on encouragement. Create a positive, optimistic outlook in your workplace. Affirm people for doing good work instead of just punishing them for doing bad. And you'll create an office environment that everybody wants to be a part of. But the most compelling case for encouragement over cynicism, for us, should be in the Bible. Because the Bible is one big story of God constantly coming to those same crossroads with us that we come to with everyone else, having to choose with us to either forget us or forgive us, having to choose to condemn us or redeem us, having to choose to discourage us or encourage us. And in the Bible it says again and again and again, and for all of eternity God has chosen to encourage you. Even the worst version of you, the worst version of me, the version of me that goes, maybe you saw me on the Internet, God encourages us, even at our worst, because that's just the extent to which God will go to make us into the people that he wants us to be. Jesus, being the embodiment of God, was a great encourager. Jesus walked around with women who got paid for having sex with strangers, and he walked around with men who took... And stole money from hardworking taxpayers. And he said to those people, you guys don't even know. You guys are the light of the world. He said to those people, you guys, y'all are the salt of the earth. Don't be disheartened. He said, Don't worry. Don't be afraid. You're God's children. He said, You're my friends. He said, You're blessed to people like that. Jesus is a great encourager because he embodies a God who is the great encourager. Lord knows he could have been a cynic. He could have kicked those people when they were down, just like every other religious person did in his day. But his purpose was to love and befriend us, not to condemn and shame us. And so don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that God just wants to sweep under the rug whatever it is that you're doing wrong. That's not it at all. God definitely wants to change us. God fundamentally wants to modify our behavioral patterns. But the means, the channel through which God has chosen to do that with us is with hope, is with encouragement, is with love. And this, my friends should get our attention. As we talk about BFFs this month, we've been talking about friendships and relationships and how to be a good friend. The way God is with us should get our attention. The way he chooses to change us should have our attention because your relationships, your friendships, you can tell me after the service if I'm wrong, but your friendships almost without fail will wear you down over time. I could almost guarantee you that you're a less encouraging person toward your inner circle now than you were a few weeks after you met and became friends or spouses or parents or whatever. Because in the beginning, in the puppy love phase of friendships or relationships, there's nothing wrong with your beloved. There's nothing wrong with your best friend. They're the greatest person ever. They can do anything they wanna do. But over time, what happens? Over time, without fail, you begin to see their, the cracks in the foundation. You begin to see their shortcomings. You begin to pick up on their patterns of sins and repeated mistakes, their redundancies and things like that that they just can't seem to break. And over time, what happens is that every time they fail, every time they let you down, you become a little more jaded. Until the point at which you're suddenly a skeptic toward your inner circle. You're suddenly part of the problem. You're suddenly one of those people who are reinforcing the limitations that they already felt. You're a bar in their prison. So you are one of the people saying, well, I guess that's how you are. It's just, ha-ha, <laughs> that's the way you're always going to be. You know, and you're a skeptical person. What happens, though, is that skepticism is just the slightly more attractive cousin to cynicism. And if you're not careful, one day you'll wake up and realize that everyone in your inner circle who should be able to depend on you for encouragement, they're all secretly, silently wondering if you're really on their side. They're really wondering if you're still in their corner, if you still care about them, if you still believe in them, or if all that was just lip service in the puppy love phase of your relationship and now it's real life. They're They're beginning to wonder if... Cynicism and skepticism take you over if they can really trust you with the worst parts of themselves and trust you to help them uh, get out of those dark parts and dark moments of their lives. So this month we've been talking about the distinction between mere fandom and true friendship. We've been talking a lot about uh, the difference between your fans and your friends. This is important for you to know, because there are people in your life that you think are your friends, but they're really just fans. It's also important for you to know there are people in your life who need you to be a friend, but you've just been a fan or an acquaintance. And Jesus calls us toward friendship with our inner circle. So today I want to talk about the distinction being that friends uh, build up. Fans tear down. But friends build up. Fans tear down and friends build up. So, friendships that stand the test of time happen when two people who are friends learn the fine art of encouragement. And it doesn't come naturally to us, it doesn't happen accidentally. In the book of Acts, if you want to open your Bibles and have them ready, we're going to read through some passages a little bit later. Acts chapter 9, chapter 11. We're introduced in the book of Acts, which is uh, the first book after the Gospels in the New Testament. It's kind of the chronicles of the first-generation church. And in the book of Acts, we're introduced to the patron saint of encouragement. His name is Barnabas. Actually, that's not his real name. His real name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname given to him by the disciples of Jesus. And you all should know by now that Jesus created a tradition within his movement that guys give other guys nicknames. This is what they did. Peter's name wasn't Peter. Peter meant the rock. James and John were the sons of thunder. Uh, uh, Thomas was the twin. Uh, And now Barnabas... Uh, is the son of encouragement. That's what the the name Barnabas means. It wasn't a common name. It was just a phrase that meant the son of encouragement. I kind of wish we kept that tradition alive in the church. I wish I could still give all of you nicknames when you join the church as you stand up here in front of people and get baptized. I I would love to give you a nickname that stuck like forever for all of eternity. I I made a list of nicknames that I would give some of you and I can't share them publicly, but if you want to know your nickname, email me or something. I'll tell you your nickname, all right? So, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. I want to ask you, what kind of a man would earn a title like that? What sort of man do you think Barnabas must have been? I want you to picture in your mind the sort of man that would be named the son of encouragement. We've got some Barnabases in this room today. Barnabas must have been the guy that always walked into a room smiling. He kind of bounces when he walks. He's happy to see you every time. He always asks you how you're doing, and he means it. It's not just a pleasantry. He wants to know. To be the son of encouragement means that Barnabas had a generous heart. We find some other things out about him when we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 4. I've included that passage in your study, guys. We're not going to read it aloud. I'll just tell you. In that passage, we learned that Barnabas was a priest, an Orthodox Jewish priest, who decided to follow Jesus, which means that he sacrificed his whole career to follow Jesus. He couldn't continue being a serious Orthodox priest and give your life to this rogue rabbi, right? So he'd given all that away, probably sacrificed some of his family and friendships and things like that. But he decides to follow Jesus. And the disciples call him the son of encouragement. He's a leader in the church. He's a very prominent apostle in the church. We also learn from Acts chapter 4 that he's a generous man. He goes and sells a piece of land that he had, and he brings the money to the apostles to distribute to the needs of those the church is serving. Why would a generous man, why would an encourager like Barnabas be such a generous man? It's because when you have an encourager's heart, you look for ways to encourage as many people as you can. You look for ways to encourage your city, to encourage the world. And Barnabas saw the church meeting the needs of the poor, meeting the needs of the prisoners, the lonely, the elderly, the elderly, the homeless more than any other body within society was doing. And so he gave freely to the church. Now I know it's a little bit of a faux pas to talk about giving and money too much in a church, and I don't want to beat this drum too much. But I do want you to know that not much has changed between the church that encouraged Barnabas to give and the church today. And I just wish I wish so much that you all could see every week what I am so privileged to see. The ways in which your gifts and your resources, your money, the ways in which those things go to encourage your city. I wish you could see the numbers of homeless, near homeless, struggling people who find their way to this campus and into this building to find some support, some friendships, some money, some food. I wish you could see the numbers of immigrants and refugees that find their way to our mission outpost in Gethsemane. it's it's in Sharpstown and they learn English there and they have a community there and they have a foundation in a foreign land that they were so worried would be so difficult and finally they have friends and a community. I wish you could see right now what's happening upstairs in Children's Church and the way that our volunteers are pouring into the lives of our children, giving them the stories of Jesus that will form the foundation of the rest of their lives and when the storm winds blow in their lives, they will not Fall, they will not fail because they stand on solid ground with Jesus. Because of what's happening now, because of what you've given. I wish you could see what's going to happen next month in the, the Dominican Republic when our team goes there and pours love and, and, and passion and concern into the lives of the families and children in the, the Dominican Republic, into the worst areas of that impoverished country. I wish you could see the difference you make. I know, I know you don't, you're not privy to all of that. I wish you were because the things that happened when Barnabas was around are still happening today. There is nothing like a local church to transform a city and a world. When people give generously, the world around the church changes. People understand the church, not as some religious institution that's distant and far from their needs, but as a source of hope, a source of transformation. Barnabas knew that and he gave freely because he was a natural encourager. Now, The next time we're introduced to Barnabas is five chapters later in Acts chapter 9. You can turn there with me, Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. What's happening in this passage is that there is a man who wants to be a part of church leadership. The church is growing and, and everything's great, but the church needs more leaders. And so this man says, I'll help lead the church I think I can preach, I'm a pretty good speaker, I'm educated, he says, I can probably lead a community, I met Jesus one time, and yeah, I'm in. But the disciples in Jerusalem are like, I don't know, because this guy, just a few months before, happened to be a hitman that was taking out Christians. He was part of the political machine that wanted to eliminate Christians and Christianity. He was overseeing the stoning executions and torture of some of the relatives and friends of the guys he's asking for authority in the church now in Jerusalem. Same guy. And the disciples aren't so sure (laughs) that they should trust him for obvious reasons. That guy's name was Paul. And in Acts chapter nine, this is what happens. When he had come, this is Paul, when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid for him, afraid of him <laughs> for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They thought he was infiltrating the ranks to take out people from within. That's what he'd been doing his whole life, his whole adult life. But Barnabas, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles and described for them how on the road he had, Paul had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how in Damascus Paul had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Paul, Barnabas speaks up for Paul. I believe we have another page here. So uh, he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul spoke and argued with the Hellenists. Those are the Greeks or the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So they sent him away to his hometown to protect him. And for 10 years after this passage, Paul stays under the radar because he's a wanted man. People are hunting him. And so he flies under the radar, and the church continues to grow. The church continues to grow in places like Antioch. Antioch was a lot like Houston in the Roman Empire. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Houston, I believe, is the third largest city in America. I'm sorry, Chicago, but it's happening. It's probably already happened, so just get over it, I guess. Enjoy your winter, Chicago. But like, so Antioch was a lot like... Houston, in that it was full of people from all over the world, many different cultures and places. The church is blowing up in Antioch. And even though these people are from all different places, they're coming together in the church, understanding each other. There's a new thing happening there. And so it's just, it's incredible what's happening. But there's no leader for it. The leaders of the church, they have no one to send to Antioch. No one with the right kind of charisma or vision or, you know, uh, ability to lead this thing as it needs to be led. They send Barnabas, but Barnabas' gift was never to be in the spotlight. Barnabas is a behind-the-scenes guy. Luckily, though, Barnabas knows a guy. The guy he stood up for 10 years ago. This is what happens. You can follow along. Acts chapter 9, verses 26. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 11, verses 22 through 26. Acts 11:22 through 26. News of, this is news of the growth of the church in Antioch came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Those are the leaders, Peter and those guys. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, where he'd left him 10 years ago. And when he found Saul, Saul is Paul, y'all should know that probably, and he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. In Acts chapter 11. What I want you to see today is that without Barnabas, there would be no Apostle Paul who I believe is one of the top five most influential historical figures, at least in Western civilization, probably in human history. Some might disagree. I can state the case for Paul pretty well, I think. So without Barnabas, there's no Paul. There's no Pauline letters. You know, all the letters Paul wrote. We also have evidence that without Barnabas, there's no John Mark, who Barnabas also stood up for, defended, and encouraged. John Mark was the author of Mark's Gospel. So without Barnabas, we today would be without more than one-third of the New Testament. Barnabas himself never wrote a word of the New Testament. He didn't need to. He knew his role. He was a behind-the-scenes guy there to encourage and prop up and help others reach their fullest potential. But without him, there would be no Apostle Paul and no John, Mark, one-third of the New Testament. Barnabas was an encourager. He brought out the very best in his friends. He encouraged them, and that is exactly what friends do for each other. Friends encourage friends. I know it's not easy. I know it seems elementary, and you think it will come naturally to you, but I'm telling you, encouragement requires intentionality. And I just want to ask you very seriously right now. How encouraging are you with your inner circle? Really? Not how encouraging were you when you first met. How encouraging would they say you are today? Do you go out of your way to encourage your closest friends? If you're married, do you go out of your way to encourage your spouse? Or are you mostly adversarial? Or distant. If you're a parent, do you go out of your way to encourage your children? My hunch is that many of us are worn out. We think we're not capable of it, it takes too much pride swallowing and things like that. I want us to learn the art of encouragement today, and so I've kind of broken it down into three stages of encouragement or three phases of encouragement that I I think broken down, if we take this stuff home with us and chew on it, study on it, pray on it, I think it will help us become a more encouraging person, right? So with our friends, our loved ones, our inner circle, that's our goal today. It's for you to go home a greater encourager than you are now. I'm going to wrap up at the end with the why, why it's important. The first thing that's, it's important to know about encouragement, is that an encouraging friend checks in. Encouragement checks in. What this means is very simple. It's checking in with your friends, even when you're stressed out, when your schedule is maxed, when you're pulled in too many different directions. We all get overwhelmed. The temptation in those moments is to kind of sulk away in a corner, in the proverbial corner with Netflix and a bottle of wine and just be alone. That's that's apathy, y'all, that's apathy. And that's the opposite of encouragement. Encouragement is going out of your way to check on the people in your life. I want you to think about the most encouraging people you've ever known, just maybe two or three people that encouraged you to this point in your life. Think about what they all had in common. I would almost bet that all those people had in common this one fact, that whenever you were in front of them, you were the most important person in their life. You don't think those people had their own worries, people that you're thinking of right now that encouraged you? You don't think they had their own concerns, their own stresses? But they never laid any of that stuff on you right away. They always made you understand that your concerns, your fears, your dreams, they were primary. They put your concerns before their own. They encouraged you. My first encourager that I remember, she came into my life when I was 11 or 12 years old, and I was going through a very dark time, which I know is weird to say, at 11 or 12 year old. But any parent of an 11 or 12 year old will know that darkness is real at 11 or 12. Can I get an amen? All right, so parents know, I was going, my family was going through some stuff, and some separation stuff, and all this stuff, and, and I was just lost. My grades were plummeting, and my self-esteem was through the roof, and I was, I mean, not through the roof, through the floor, I guess. And it was just awful, awful time in my life. But I would spend summer afternoons in the living room of this 90-something-year-old woman named Nettie Carr, and we would watch Judge Watner's People's Court together, and she would give me Werther's Original Candies, just like every old lady is supposed to give to little kids, right? And... And she was the first person I ever remember telling me that I'm good. You know, besides your mom, she always tells you that stuff. But like, she's, Nettie Carr was her name, and she always told me, you're a good boy. Man, all your potential, you're so gifted, you might be a pastor one day. She was the first person to tell me I might be a pastor someday. i got to tell you today, I'm not real sure that without Nettie Carr's, where there's originals and Judge Watner on the TV, and encouragement, I'm not sure I would be here today. I'm not sure there would be this happening today without that encouragement at that point in my life. She changed the trajectory of my very existence. You can think of people like this in your life that check in with you and make sure you're okay and encourage you. The second thing that encouragement does is uh, encouragement builds up. So if checking in is the equivalent of saying, you good? Ask the person next to you, you good? Go ahead, you good? That's checking in. Encouragement building up is saying, you're good. The person next to you say, you're good. You're good. Has anyone ever told you that? You're good. These are the people that give you that sense of security, that sense that everything's going to be okay. You know these people? I hope you have someone like that in your life. That no matter what's going on in your life, everything's going to work out. You're good. You're good. We're good here. This is, this is Barnabas telling Paul You know, yeah, yeah, I know you used to stone us. I know, you know, we used to call you the son of Satan. I know. But I believe in who you are. You're good now. I believe in you. I believe in Jesus in you. You're good. This is the power of encouragement. Encouragement builds up. Encouragement points out the good in someone that no one else sees, the good in someone that they may not even see. Encouragement says, You're good. Are you Barnabas to your inner circle? That's my question. To whom are you Barnabas? The third thing that encouragement does is encouragement calls out. Now, if checking in is saying you're good and building up is saying you're good, encouragement is saying you're better than that. Look at the person next to you and say emphatically, you're better than that. I know some of y'all have been waiting to say that to the person you're sitting next to. (laughs) You're better than that. This, This is very important because this is how encouragement in our worldview differs from a Hallmark card. Because encouragement is not sappy, it is not sentimental, it is not sweeping under the rug. The destructive tendencies of your friends. You will not find any Hallmark cards that say, You're the best friend a girl could ask for. I'm so lucky to have you in my life. Now, you should really th- rethink that man that you've been dating. Or, you know, you should. <laughs> they should make Hallmark cards. You know, you should rethink that deodorant you've been using. Like, no one will ever put that on a Hallmark card. I'm telling you, encouragement tells the truth. Real encouragement tells the truth, because encouragement, and I hope you'll write this down if you're in a small group, I want you to discuss this. Encouragement expects forward progress. Theologically speaking, encouragement expects holiness. If you're a true friend, you expect holiness and progress as you encourage your friends. I want you to think about your friendships honestly for just a minute. Just reflect on your inner circle and tell me the truth here. Is there any layer of accountability in your inner circle of friends. Guys, I'm speaking especially to you right now. Women typically are better at holding each other accountable to things and opening up, but men, is there any expectation of accountability in your friends group? Or do you just get together to hang out? You just get together to have fun? Do you laugh off each other's destructive tendencies? If so, with all due respect, you do not have a friendship. What that is, is enabling Friendship calls one another to the mat. Friends do not enable, friends encourage, and encouragement involves calling each other out when destructive patterns and tendencies continue. Friendships say you're better than that. Here's the breakthrough I had this week as a theological nerd. Would you allow me to just theologically geek out? Can I be a methodork for a second on my way out of this sermon today? When I thought about this process, checking in, building up, and calling out, what occurred to me is that this is exactly the process the Bible describes in terms of God's grace with us. What we're talking about is not just encouragement, person to person, this is not just people skills, this is the grace of God. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, described the grace of God in three moves. And he talks about these three different functions of the grace of God. He says there's prevenient grace, that grace that was with you before you even wanted it, the grace that was with you but when you didn't want anything to do with God, but God kept leaving those breadcrumbs along the path to bring you back. You know what I'm talking about, too. All of us do. God kept putting up signs to point you back to him, even though you didn't want anything to do with him. That's prevenient grace. That's God checking in with you, saying, You good? Then there's justifying grace, which is that aha moment many of us have felt where it all comes to light and we all realize that all the stuff in here, all the claims that the Bible makes, all the stuff we've heard, it's all true, that God is real. He really made everything that we know, that Jesus must be who he said he was. So life must mean more than just success and money. There must be more. It's the aha moment when we realize, oh my God, you're real. And it's God telling us you're good. We're good. No matter what you've done, even the worst version of you, we're good. And you sense that he wants to pull out something in you that no one else sees. You didn't even know the potential that was there that God sees in you. And third, there's the idea of sanctifying grace. Grace which is the work of the Holy Spirit. After your moment of justification or salvation, you realize there's more to be done here. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit doesn't just comfort you. The Holy Spirit, he he afflicts you in a sense. He, He actually convicts you. The Holy Spirit calls you out. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the one that speaks through your conscience, through the Word of God, through your Christian friends and community, through prayer. The Holy Spirit says, okay, okay, you're a Christian, but you can't in good conscience keep calling yourself a Christian and and still be a racist. You can't call yourself a Christian and still frequent those websites you used to frequent. You can't call yourself a Christian and keep treating women the way that you do, or you can't call yourself a Christian... And keep loving money and hating your enemy. You're better than that. So what all of this means, and why all this matters, is that the Bible is very clear that salvation happens. The salvation of your soul happens through the grace of God. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, should be a memory verse. For us, because it says, for by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. No one can boast. It is just the work of God that we're saved. You're not saved because you're at church today. You're saved because of the grace of God. So what this means, my breakthrough was that if it's the grace of God that saves us, if it's the grace of God that calls us home, and if encouragement is grace in action, then what potential is there in us being better encouragers with our inner circles? What are the possibilities for the lives of those you love most if you become today a more intentional encourager of your friends? What's at stake? If you think about it, it's nothing less than eternity. It's nothing less than security. It's nothing less than a relationship with God forever. If we truly encourage one another, we can pull one another up toward a greater existence with God when we check in, build up, and call out. So I'm encouraging you today to check in with your friends. Even if you're worried you're going to forget. Yeah, the pastor said that, but I'm going to forget tomorrow. Take out your phone right now and put it in the calendar. I'm not going to get mad at you for pulling out your phone in the middle of my sermon. Half of you do it anyway. So go ahead and do it. Monday, 8 a.m., encourage Johnny. Whatever, do it. And you will remember, and when you talk to them, you talk to your friends, remind them of the good that you see in them. Go deeper with each other. Call each other out on your mess, on your stuff. Pull each other toward a better life, a higher purpose. Check in with each other. Build each other up and call each other out. It's as easy as saying, you good? You're good. And you're better Friends, your mission in life as friends, as Christians, is to be Jesus to one another. And for today's purposes, I would say to be Barnabas to each other. Your friends need you to be Barnabas. To put them before yourself. To love them as Jesus loved you. Encourage them because God first encouraged you. It will make all the difference in the world.